Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hi there. I'm Professor Finlay McRae, Head of Colorectal Medicine and Genetics at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Today I'd like to talk to you about the management of a gluten-free diet, providing guidelines, case studies and practical recommendations. I uh, have a a declaration that I'm Chair of the Glutagen Medical Advisory Board and a leading investigator in clinical trials exploring glutagen's products. So the agenda of the webinar is a discussion on celiac disease and non-celiac wheat gluten sensitivities, diagnosis of celiac disease and non-celiac gluten wheat sensitivities, is the gluten-free diet always effective, and what's the impact of treatment, management of gluten-related disorders and enzyme supplementation, and the follow-up of patients with celiac disease, why, how, and how often, and we'll finish with some case studies. So the gluten-related disorders are a spectrum comprising a wide variety of conditions where gluten is the main trigger. Several toxic protein fractions of gluten are responsible for the adaptive or innate immune response in gluten-related conditions. The best known conditions are mediated by the adaptive immune system, wheat allergy and celiac disease. In both conditions, the reaction to gluten is mediated by T-cell activation in the gastrointestinal mucosa. However, there's an array of other conditions involving different allergic, immune, and conversely, non-autoimmune, non-allergic pathways uh, in this spectrum of gluten-related disorders. You can see that the autoimmune ones can uh, include the classic celiac disease, which can be symptomatic or silent, or potential, and also dermatitis hepatiformis, whereas the allergic ones are usually more in younger people with food allergy, or wheat-determined exercise-induced, wheat-dependent exercise-induced allergy. So celiac disease can present with a protein list of clinical manifestations, commonly gastrointestinal with mouth ulcers, vomiting, burping, stomach pain, cramp, bloating, of course, typically or classically diarrhoea, but you can get constipation. And then there are neurological features as well, headache, migraine, fatigue, concentration difficulties and mood swings. And the trigger for these symptomatologies in celiac disease is a gluten immunogenic, is gluten immunogenic peptides, which lead to small bowel villus damage. Non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity can present it with an overlap of symptomatology, making it very difficult clinically to separate the conditions. You can see that they're almost identical, the clinical presentations for non-celiac gluten sensitivity. The trigger here is wheat and its constituents, gluten and or amylase trypsin inhibitors, ATIs, and or FODMAPs. In this case, there is no evidence of villus damage on biopsies. Symptoms then overlap with irritable bowel syndrome, wheat allergy and celiac disease. The prevalence of gluten-related disorders in Australia is represented here. Celiac disease itself is relatively common. One in 70 Australians 
are, are diagnosed that can be do have celiac disease, uh, meaning approximately 375,000 people in Australia are indeed uh, celiac disease uh, sufferers, not always diagnosed. Much more common is the uh, uh, gluten-sensitive group, non-celiac gluten-sensitive group. One in four Australians report some sort of uh, sensitivity to gluten. You can see in this survey, um, self-reporting of gluten sensitivity was about 10%, medically diagnosed 2.8%, irritable bowel syndrome 3.9%, and gastroesophageal reflux 7.3%. All of these people indicating that they avoided gluten or wheat for various reasons other than celiac disease. Some partially, more commonly, and some completely avoiding gluten. So the diagnosis of celiac disease and non-celiac gluten wheat sensitivity is what I'd like to address now. When to test for celiac disease? Well then, we should offer serological testing for celiac disease to people presenting with any of the following symptoms. And you can see them there. These are common in clinical practice. And we should be thinking about the diagnosis of celiac disease. Persistent abdominal pain, or GI symptoms, faltering growth, prolonged fatigue, unexpected weight loss, severe or persistent mouth ulcers, iron or B12 or folate deficiency, particularly folate and iron, type 1 diabetes, autoimmune disease such as thyroid disease, irritable bowel syndrome, people, of course, a big overlap and always uh, uh, celiac disease always come into contention and first degree relative people with celiac disease. When, in addition, should we consider serological testing for celiac disease? And that's represented in this group of conditions, metabolic bone disorder, osteo, uh, well, osteoporosis, osteomalacia, unexplained neurological symptoms, particularly peripheral, neuro uh, peripheral neuropathy or ataxia, uh, fertility issues, metabolic-associated fatty liver disease, otherwise what we used to call NAFL, Persistently raised liver enzymes with unknown cause. That's a common situation in gastrological practice to think about celiac disease now. Dental enamel defects and rarely some uh, Down syndrome and Turner syndrome. So how do we diagnose celiac disease? Testing for celiac disease um, involves confirming the patient is actually on a gluten-containing diet. Then we request celiac serology. I would almost always use the first option, which is testing for transglutaminase antibody and deaminated gliadin peptide. The first is an IgA antibody and the second an IgG. And that is, a, that is a very good test to rule in or rule out celiac disease. Less commonly, one can just use the transglutaminase antibody together with IgA and if the IgA is low, then proceed to the second deaminated gliadin peptide. But the difference in cost is minimal uh, and well accommodated by the inconvenience of having to do two steps. So if there is positive serology, irrespective of the TETA, one needs to refer for a confirmatory small intestinal biopsy at gastroscopy. Now what is the role of HLA, DQ2 and DQ8 genotyping? 
There's a strong association between celiac disease and the specific HLA genes uh, making these haplotypes, making it a useful tool in specific situations. The main genes, as we've said, are HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8. These are present in a lot of the population, 40 to 50 percent, and in 99 percent of celiac patients. So HLA typing is available through commercial laboratories and funded through Medicare. When do we use HLA genotyping? Well, it can be used to help exclude celiac disease during diagnosis. Typically, this is a patient, and this is a common situation, who's already adopted a gluten-free diet at the time and is unwilling to take a gluten challenge. So if they return with negative HLA, DQ2 and DQ8 genotyping, then we can say that celiac disease is very unlikely. If, celiac, if the celiac diagnosis via serology and biopsies returns equivocal results, then HLA genotyping can again exclude celiac disease and point uh, and, and, uh, or identify potential cases. So it's important that a positive HLA DQ2, DQ8 test does not diagnose celiac disease. It's an indication of predisposition and indicates that further investigation may be warranted. So what can we do with people who are not following a gluten-free diet? This is the diagnostic pathway, confirm they've got gluten in their diet. Patients not following a gluten-free diet, we confirm that they're consuming a normal diet. And if it's not the case, then we go forward with HLA, DQ2 and DQ8 typing. And if those uh, tests are positive, then we need to proceed to a gluten challenge diet to establish the diagnosis. Testing then for celiac serology if positive would need to be referred for a small intestinal biopsy. So patients with gluten sensitivities, moving on to testing for celiac disease, patients on a gluten-containing diet or after a six-week gluten-challenge diet, we can proceed with serology, as we've mentioned before, optionally HLA-DQ2 and DQ8, and if that's positive, a duodenal biopsy which confirms the diagnosis of celiac disease. What about non-gluten wheat sensitivity? This is defined as a syndrome characterised by intestinal and extra-intestinal symptoms related to the ingestion of gluten-containing foods in subjects that are not affected uh, with either celiac disease or wheat allergy. The Salerno experts criteria established a standardised approach to the diagnosis of non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity. This approach involves the clinical assessment of the patient while following a gluten-free diet for at least six weeks. After this period, a double-blind placebo-controlled gluten challenge with a crossover approach should be performed, but a single-blind placebo-controlled gluten challenge could also be implemented in clinical practice. This is, a, dem this is a, a graphic of such a double blind challenge diet uh, and the details of that protocol uh, as can be found through that reference. So there is difficulties making this diagnosis through this pathway. There's no clear bi biomarker for non-celiac gluten sensitivity to help with the diagnosis. It's difficult to apply in daily clinical practice due to most patients already presenting following a gluten-free diet.
Patients are often not willing to resume a gluten intake in that double-blind challenge. It's uncertain which are the main triggers for symptoms and there's a possible contribution of a nocebo response. Lack of a standardised vehicle for the gluten, amylase trypsin inhibitors, FODMAPs or placebo challenge is also a problem. And then there are overlapping symptoms with other conditions. Due to the lack of objective markers, the double-blind placebo-controlled challenge diet remains this gold standard for diagnosing non-celiac gluten wheat sensitivity. So the recommendations here are to exclude wheat allergy and celiac disease when this condition is under consideration. Consider HLA, DQ2 and DQ8 haplotyping to, to exclude celiac disease in patients who are already following a gluten-free diet. As I said, if they don't carry these haplotypes, then it's very unlikely they've got celiac disease. Consider a specialised dietitian to assist in the double-blind placebo-controlled gluten challenge. Always consider lactose intolerance. That's much more common uh, than the um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And consider a challenge that contemplates the effects of FODMAPs. And then consider overlapping conditions or a differential diagnosis, including irritable bowel syndrome, functional dyspepsia, eosinophilic gastrointestinal diseases, inflammatory bowel diseases, or possibly dysbiosis, although dysbiosis is a very difficult uh, syndrome to attach a clinical correlate. So is the gluten-free diet always effective? And what's the impact of treatment? The only available treatment for medically diagnosed gluten-related disorders, such as celiac disease and gluten sensitivity, is a long, lifelong adherence to a strict gluten-free diet. While, quote, free from, unquote, standards differ in many regions of the world, in Australia, foods are considered gluten-free if there is less than three parts per million or non-detectable gluten in the food under consideration. Is the gluten-free diet always then effective? And it's not because of inadvertent gluten ingestion. Several studies indicate that approximately 80 to 90% of celiac patients regularly consume potentially harmful quantities of gluten, generally inadvertently. The vast majority of patients diagnosed with celiac disease suffer persisting symptoms despite being on a quote gluten-free diet, unquote. On average, about 60% of gluten patients suffer persistent duodenal mucosal damage on biopsy, 60%. This may lead to serious complications such as osteoporosis, malnutrition, intestinal lymphoma, and even small bowel adenocarcinoma. Ongoing extraintestinal symptoms are also common, such as headaches, fatigue, mood swings, and also common in those with celiac disease, and, but more frequent in those with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So the treatment, in the, the treatment is the gluten-free diet, but is it also the problem? The treatment is complex, requires complete elimination of gluten, complete elimination of cross-contamination of uh, gluten from into other apparent gluten-free sources, 
extensive planning when eating out or travelling, and accidental gluten exposure causes often debilitating symptoms and intestinal damage in celiac disease, at least in a significant, significant but small portion of patients with celiac disease. Meals and food preparations are social in nature. The gluten-free diet often results in decreased social interactions, decreased travel and entertainment options, increased social isolation, anxiety, and a feeling of low emotional well-being. Research indicates that patients following a gluten-free diet often suffer a reduced emotional quality of life. So what is the management of celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity? Historically, patients often were not referred to a dietitian, and that led to nutritional gaps and uh, the importance of follow-ups was not well covered. Patients report that they are often told to learn about the gluten-free diet and uh, diet on their own through Google or whatever else. New patients, dietary management should include support and knowledge from a specialised dietitian to introduce patients to the gluten-free diet, highlight common challenges and pitfalls of the gluten-free diet, educate about nutritional challenges of the gluten-free diet and navigate potential accident, accidental gluten exposure. Useful tools and recommendations to support patients include joining the Celiac Australia and consideration of travel cards and glutagard, which I'll mention later. Group support and counselling may be needed. Returning non-responsive patients, we should be thinking about the level of knowledge of the patient, consequences of cheating on the diet, ability to identify gluten-free foods and products, are ways to avoid accidental gluten exposure and how to maintain a healthy quality of life while on a gluten-free diet. We should assess the patient's food environment, medications they're taking and supplements, living and housing situations. Is the kitchen shared and therefore open to contamination with gluten? What's the family support and financial limitations? Assess mineral and vitamin levels assess signs of depression, isolation and anxiety, and refer to a specialised dietitian if the patient's in trouble. Consider recommending glutagard to support, with support accidental gluten ingestion. I want to mention just briefly enzyme supplementation for the management of gluten-free diet. Enzyme supplementation is available through this product, glutagard. It's uh, uses a unique enzyme, caracane, extracted from the skin of caracapaya fruit. Caracane was studied extensively in in vitro studies and shown capable of breaking down gluten's toxic and immunogenic peptides. Additionally, glutagard was shown effective at degrading amylase trypsin inhibitors. The combination of caracane's high activity, unique specificity, and the use of enteric coating was shown in clinical trials to be effective at protecting patients from a modest but significant gluten challenge. Cl clinical evidence does suggest efficacy of glutagard. This is how its mode of action. When taken before a meal, glutagard's enteric coating ensures that the caracane enzymes are delivered to the small intestine. The enzymes actively target and break down gluten's toxic and immunogenic peptides into single or short chains of amino acids 
before these interact with the intestinal lining. By rendering the peptides into harmless fractions, Glutagard prevents them from triggering the symptoms and indeed the immune response, which we know quite a lot about within the mucosa uh, in the response to gluten-related, in patients with gluten-related disorders. This is one study that I was involved in uh, and ran some time ago, studying Glutagard's efficacy in a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled gluten challenge uh, involving 20 celiac patients following a gluten-free diet longer than two years. And 14 were allocated to glutagard and 6 to placebo. They all underwent a challenge with gluten and um, symptoms were assessed as well as serology and biopsies. And the findings were that 67% of the placebo group abandoned the gluten challenge due to the severity of their symptoms, whereas only 14% of the treatment group did. There was a significant reduction in symptoms uh, and a better feeling of well-being in those who were covered by the glutagard during the challenge. And indeed, there was no significant detrimental damage in the small bowel histology in the treatment group, despite concluding the 40-day, 42-day gluten challenge. These are glutagard's recommended usages, a whole tablet immediately before meals, when food is prepared by other in situations where food is prepared by others, such as dining away or taking away food, when travelling, prepared in shared kitchens, when the ingredient labelling is uncertain, or when required medication is not gluten-free. It's now an over-the-counter over the product in pharmacies uh, recently. But it's always to be used in conjunction with a gluten-free diet. It helps protect from symptoms of accidental gluten ingestion or those with medically diagnosed gluten sensitivities. Now, what about follow-up? Guidelines recommend combined evaluation of symptoms, laboratory tests, and serology during follow-up. Why to follow-up? Well, we need to follow-up to ensure compliance is achieved to the gluten-free diet, but this can be challenging and socially restrictive and expensive. Accidental gluten exposure and persistent symptoms are common. Associated conditions and complications, including nutritional deficiency, may creep in. And this could lead to increased fractures, increased risk of infections, and even lymphoma. Non-responsive celiac disease and ongoing symptoms in non-celiac gluten sensitivity affect 30 to 40% of patients. So these are some of the international recommendations about following up patients with celiac disease. And you can see it a lot across the top, the various authorities, the American College of Gastroenterology, the British Society of Gastroenterology, the World Gastroenterology Organization, uh, the American Gastroenterological Association, and a European celiac group. Firstly, in terms of clinical follow-up, evaluate for clinical improvement after one year on a gluten-free diet. Serology, we recommend, I would recommend repeating the serology every six to 12 months until normal and then perhaps every couple of years. Uh, what about biopsy? Well, consider a follow-up biopsy in all patients after they've been on a gluten-free diet for one to two years to demonstrate improvement and perhaps repeat the biopsy if there is persistent damage uh, and non-response or in seropositive cases during the course of 
their clinical journey with celiac disease. So now I'd like to introduce just a couple of case studies of mine. The first one is Mrs. Ms. D.B., who's now aged 63. She was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome, quote unquote, with increasing diarrhoea, 10 bowel actions per day, possibly steatorrhea and urgency, pain, but no bleeding. There was some loss of weight and incapacitating tiredness. Her sister was celiac and her daughter had failed to thrive neonatally. She was low, low in certain minerals and vitamins, including vitamin D, folic acid, but many were also normal. A duodenal biopsy showed, various, uh, showed variable villus atrophy with increased intraepithelial lymphocytes. Anti-endomycel antibody before this, that was a test done at that time, was positive. She had a bearing follow-through and she was replete in IgA. So the diagnosis was confirmed with the biopsy and there was also associated lactose deficiency defined clinically. Her bones at that stage were not too bad um, and in time her um, serology became negative on a gluten-free diet. In 1997, despite rigorous adherence to a gluten-free diet, her diarrhoea continued and she had little weight gain. She unfortunately developed breast cancer and had needed an oophorectomy but the diarrhoea persisted with aggressive looseness, with urgency incontinence. So we were tasked with trying to understand why this was occurring. Could it be the lactose deficient, lactase deficiency? Could it be pancreatic insufficiency, as there is a connection? Could it be irritable bowel syndrome? Could she have relapsed on her celiac disease? Lymphocytic and collagenous colitis are associated with celiac disease, so could this have this appeared? Could she be thyrotoxic? What about bile salt spillover and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? She came to another biopsy in 2006, which still showed variable villus atrophy with increased intraepithelial lymphocytes, but by 2010, with dietary management, her biopsy was normal. She does eat out a lot, a lot, and enjoys eating out a lot, and uses glutagard to protect her from accidental exposure to gluten during those periods outside, which she says definitely works. The second case is of Miss KM, who's aged 28. She had a 15-year history of diarrhoea, three to five per day, variably consistency, no bleeding, pain pre and after defecation, periumbilically, and lower abdomen, up to eight on a 10-point scale of severity. She find bloating very embarrassing and did have extraintestinal features of irritable bowel syndrome, including paresthesia, migraine, dysuria, and some dysphagia and stabbing chest pains. She did, however, find that her symptoms improved on holidays. She had a history of uh, reflux disease, ADHD, she'd had a cholecystectomy, and she had two cousins with Crohn's disease. Features on examination were notable for strii, and she considered gluten and lactose exacerbated her symptoms. She had a range of investigations, all of which were normal, including celiac serology, but her HLA-DQ2 typing was positive. She had a normal nutritional screen except for a serum folate. The diagnosis then was irritable bowel syndrome, 
or non-celiac gluten sensitivity. We moved straight forward to management, uh, including managing the gut-brain axis discussion, trying a low FODMAP diet, dairy-free diet. She saw a gut psychologist and had amitriptyline. Recently, however, she's taken glutagard, which she's found very helpful. So I'd like to thank you for attending this webinar on celiac disease, and shortly we'll be providing a Q&A segment to respond to questions collected by HealthEd about this topic, and that will be made available to you in the coming days. Thank you for attending. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.